This is Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus increment 278. It's a continuation of Cosmicon from last Wednesday, April 19th. This is Wednesday, April 26th. And this is, again, increment 278, Cosmicon. And we're still dealing, and this will, I guess we'll call this the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews part 5. And I want to recap a couple things because the importance of these things kind of struck me as we were giving it. When I was preparing this in my study, I didn't quite see it. And then during the study, and I always pray that while I'm communicating, I pray that God will show me and discoveries and insights during the proclamation or during the, the teaching. And that's exactly what I pray for now, Father, that you will allow us to discover wonderful things out of your word, open our eyes to see these things, and most of all, open our eyes to see Jesus and to see the invisible things that faith lays hold of and to have an anticipation of hoped-for things. We thank you for the invaluable, supernatural gift of your grace called faith, and we pray that you will grant us the power to use it to perceive things that cannot be perceived by sight. And so I entrust to you my spirit and the spirit of all those who listen today for the purpose of receiving your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews 8.13 and 9.1, which reads like this, by saying, New he makes the first covenant obsolete. Now what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. This was on what Barry Maguire used to call in his song, Eve of Destruction. We're on the eve of destruction, he said. And I believe he became a Christian since that time of making that great hit. But this is the... Jerusalem on the eve of destruction. I think that's when Hebrews was written. There are those who argue that Hebrews was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. And believe it or not, you can actually make a case for that. But in either case, the attention is drawn to Jesus Christ and him crucified, to the once and for all forever self-sacrifice of Christ that is determinative of the ages and determinative of our faith and determinative of our destiny and of creation's destiny that has universally saving significance and his death also having an impact that reaches across time backwards and forwards and across the ages and through all of humanity, the dead and the living both. And that's what Hebrews is all about. It's my contention that Hebrews does display Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, just as Revelation did and does, just as Romans does, does and did, and just as all of Paul's writings do, just as the entire New Testament does, just as the entire major single narrative, master narrative, what we call the Bible, does display a revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and in Jesus Christ and in him crucified and the universal diachronic impact of his saving death, burial, and resurrection in the Christ event. What we want to pull up here is again in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1. Now, indeed, the first covenant had, had associated with it regulations for service and a this-worldly sanctuary. Uh, the word cosmicon, then, we discovered, may have an indication of universal significance because cosmicon means cosmic or universal in that sense. The Judaist, the Jews or people in Judaism would have said and the apologists of Judaism would have looked at the temple as having a universal significance and they would have seen a universal significance in the service of the Levitical priests. The Hebrew writer corrects that and says that that was only a temporary significance because the writer 
says that when God spoke through Jeremiah, when Yahweh spoke in Jeremiah, he said the word new, and by saying new, he signaled the antiquation of the old, the disappearance and vanishing of the old was also signaled by that word new. And so this writer anticipated the destruction of what is of this world only, and that includes the temple, and that includes the city of Jerusalem, which is not a permanent city, and that the readers and the writer were on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the great historical and dramatic depiction of the end of the Old Covenant. And so, in my view, and I'm reiterating, it is not only faintly possible, but possibly somewhat probable, that's the way I word it, that the Hebrews writer had in mind the universal significance of the temple to to Judaism, its universal significance to Judaism, and that he played on this to show that Not the temporary earthly tent or temple had universal significance, but that they only pointed to Jesus Christ, whose significance as a priest who offered one sacrifice is both universal and saving. For Jesus, also known as Yeshua, is the God who saves. And so we showed that he came into an adversarial relationship to the temple, which is the place of the tent now, the wilderness tent made a transfer to the temple in Jerusalem. And oddly enough, in 586 BC was the first destruction of the temple. And then in 570 years later, in 516 BC, the temple was restored. But then 516 plus 70 makes another 586 the temple was destroyed again. This is in one sense, in one nuance of meaning of what it means to undergo the second death. The second death of the the old temple was the final death. And so again, the temple was destroyed in 586 BC under Nebuchadnezzar and his army, the army of Babylon. And then there was 70 years of exile and then the return to Jerusalem with the book of Nehemiah and Ezra indicates those things, the rebuilding of the temple and that was the restored temple which was restored essentially in 516. So you have 516 up to 70 AD, you have another kind of like 586 more years. So 586 figures both in the destruction of the the first temple and in the destruction of the second temple. Hebrews is written on the eve of the destruction of the second temple and that's where we find ourselves located. I also went into a second phase which I find to be extremely important and that is one of the great connections of Hebrews with 2 Corinthians which we've been interweaving now for several months with Hebrews is the conception of faith in both of these documents. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we have the definition of faith. And this is all reiteration so that we can progress with a little more momentum. This definition can be given both objectively and subjectively. Remember, subjectively, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Subjectively turns to the subject, you, me, and we have, it's an, there's an interiority to it. It's the inner assurance of things hoped for. The things hoped for here are specifically the things promised by God. And the things unseen, and those are the invisible eternal things that faith also perceives. And that's an inner conviction and an inner assurance that equals a resolute stability in the agona, in the time in between the two radical alterations. Objectively, faith is the reality of hope for things, and therefore, in a sense, it's the indwelling Christ himself. 
It's the proof of unseen things also, the evidence of unseen things. It's the internalized biblical evidence of invisible realities. What are, when we get the scriptures, we assimilate the scriptures, we assimilate Bible doctrine. We are assimilating biblical evidence of invisible realities. Reality is not perceptible to natural ways of perception or to human technological ways of perception, including artificial intelligence. This objective definition carries weight because Christ is given room to be at home in our hearts by faith. Christ is actually equated with faith or faithfulness in Galatians 3.23 to 25 and really 3.22 to 25. Moreover, faith or the faith is often enough in Scripture related to the body of doctrine which has come down to us in the Scriptures. You can point to the Bible and call it the faith if you want, especially that which is called the New Testament. Faith is also understood to mean Christ's faithfulness or even Christ himself. Most often, and I want to make this clear again, when faith is described as the possession of individuals, something given to us by God, something evoked in us, ignited in us, and I like to think of faith most, most importantly as a supernatural gift of grace from God to us. And it is the... Described then as the possession of individuals that always has the subjective sense, or most of the time the subjective sense. It is the individual's assurance of things hoped for, promised by God and therefore guaranteed. And it is also the conviction, the inner conviction of invisible realities. Not only that they exist, but that these individual realities are eternal and infinitely for us. And the invisible God is for us. This conviction is not only an inner persuasion of the existence of unseen realities, but the inner confidence in the everlasting nature and essence of invisible realities, such as God, who is for us, God's throne, a throne of grace, Jesus Christ, his son, who loved us and gave himself for us, the eternal spirit through whom he offered himself without spot to God, the new covenant, also called everlasting in Hebrews 13.20, eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12, eternal salvation in 5.9, and eternal inheritance in Hebrews 9.15-17 for the beneficiaries of the everlasting new covenant and the death of the testator of the New Testament. Faith is virtually equated with obedience. And this is where we're taking off a little bit with more momentum. Faith is virtually equated with obedience in Romans 1.5 and 16.26. So faith is obedience, the obedience that God requires of man. And then he gives it as a gift. So it's the, what is called the obediential potency of the new covenant community. Faith, the obediential potency of the new covenant community, is surely a capacity given by grace. Faith becomes an allegiance to God, which is granted cheerfully and is executed cheerfully by all of us. Eventually, every knee will bow gladly, every tongue will confess worshipfully that Yeshua is Yahweh, that Yahweh of the Old Testament is Yeshua, the saving God in Jesus Christ. So faith is the obediential potency of the new covenant community, and it is surely a capacity given by grace. As Barth wrote, Karl Barth in CD, it's Church Dogmatics, volume four, point part one, that's CDIV point one, Barth wrote, he does not demand any other obedience than that of a free and glad because a natural gratitude. And that's a wonderful statement. God does not demand any other obedience than that of a free and glad because a natural gratitude. Obedience isn't something harsh. It isn't something we look at a tablet of stone and say, oh, I must do that, and then try to do it in the energy of the flesh. And it's grueling, and it's difficult, and it makes us give up. And if we're normal, we will give up. 
It's rather an obedience of a free, that means free will, willing, totally willing, and glad, joyful, because it's a natural gratitude. In other words, our obedience is a God-given, God-granted equation of our will with God's will. It is God in us, both willing and doing of good pleasure. It doesn't say God's pleasure. It's good pleasure, period. When we obey, it's to our pleasure as well as God's pleasure. When God's pleasure becomes our pleasure, well, that's our Christian service. That's our expression of gratitude to God. This squares with what the Hebrews homilist wrote in Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, receiving an immovable kingdom, let us have grace. That's the word charis or gratitude so that by it we may serve God in an acceptable manner with reverence and awe. Speaking of reverence and awe, Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with reverence and awe, with fear and trembling, for it is God is in you, both willing and doing of his good pleasure. So again, Hebrews 12.28, therefore receiving an immovable kingdom. He had just gotten done talking from Hebrews 12.26 and 27, quoting Haggai 2.6, that God was about to shake the heavens and the earth. And in one sense, that mean, he means he shook the temple down, which represents the heavens and the earth. But now we've received an unshakable kingdom, an immovable kingdom, something that will not be shaken. So therefore, receiving an immovable kingdom, let us have grace and that word there has a double meaning, a double nuanced meaning. The word charis can mean grace and it can mean gratitude. And here I think we should say it means both. Therefore, receiving an immovable kingdom, let us have gratitude. Let us have grace and grace's reciprocal attitude is gratitude. So just as love has a comprehensive genitive related to it where God's love for us and our love for God are all wrapped up in one single giftedness. So here, grace and gratitude are all wrapped up in one single present package, a gift, a, a single gift. Grace and its natural reaction from us, its natural response in us, gratitude. And so if you've received grace, you know it by gratitude, which is the natural reciprocal response. It's not something we have to work up and say, let us have a service tonight where we give gratitude and thanksgiving for the grace we've received. No, grace that we've received is gratitude reciprocated immediately. It's the same thing. It's always going on at the same time. Just like the love of Christ for us and our love for Christ goes on at the same time. And our love for humanity goes on because it's God's love in us. Therefore, receiving an immovable kingdom, let us have grace or gratitude or both. Let's have both grace and gratitude so that by it we may serve God in an acceptable manner with reverence and awe. The sense of the Now, what, what does this mean? Gratitude is something, what am I, if I'm serving God now by preaching this message, what should my attitude be? Gratitude, gratefulness, thank you, Father, for letting me do this, for letting me serve you. May I serve you with joy and with gratitude and with thanksgiving for this privilege. And if you remove me from this privilege, I will have gratitude and thanksgiving for the privilege of living to you and worshiping you in my life and livingness in my ever, every little action and every larger action. That's what life is about. The sense of this verse, Hebrews 12, 28, allows for both meanings of charis, grace and gratitude. Only by grace, with its reasonable response of gratitude, its built-in reasonable response of gratitude, and the supernatural gift of faith, do we serve God in a way that's pleasing to him? Because Hebrews 11.6 says only by faith we please him and by receiving grace we please him. So it is receiving faith by grace that we receive him. Put Hebrews 11.6 together with 12.28. You got one of those little explosions I like to call of correlation. Paul would call the writer of Hebrews a man who serves the Messiah 
in a manner that is acceptable to God. Why? Because in Romans 14, 17, Paul says, the kingdom of God, this immovable kingdom, is not meat and drink. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's righteousness, joy, and peace. Righteousness, peace, and joy, in that order, in the Holy Spirit. And then Paul said something curious. He said, he that serves God with this in mind, and I'm paraphrasing, is serving God acceptably. You see, if you're serving God and thinking the kingdom of God is meat and drink, you're like the Old Testament priests in Hebrews 9.10. But if you realize that that's no longer a matter of eating and drinking, and it's not like we got to have a season of Lent where we give up eating and drinking certain things that we had pleasure in so that when Lent's over, we binge those things. That's not the kingdom of God. It's not anywhere near it. In fact, it's almost antagonistic to it. Paul would call the writer of Hebrews a man who serves the Messiah in a manner that's acceptable to God precisely, that's 14.18 of Romans, precisely because he knows that this immovable kingdom, the kingdom of God, does not consist of regulations regarding food and drink, but in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, in Romans 14.17. And so there is a wonderful correlation between Romans 14.17 and 18 and Hebrews 9.10 because the PT who wrote Hebrews spoke of the old antiquated covenant that had regulations that, quote, involve only food and drink and various washings having to do with the body involving only the external body imposed upon it until the time of the new order. So you see, he talks about only foods and drinks in Hebrews 9.10, which is belonging to the old vanishing way, as opposed to the true kingdom of God, the immovable kingdom that we have received. Again, the PT who wrote Hebrews spoke of the old antiquated covenant that had regulations that involve only food and drink and various washings, regulations only involving the body imposed into the time, until the time of the new order, deorthosis. Deorthosis, I believe, and I can verify through documentation, is a synonym for other words like apokatastasis, which already began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or anakephaleosis, the summing up of all things in Christ, which already began when God reconciled the world to himself and will be culminated in the radical alteration of the human and creational condition. The writer of Hebrews knew that the kingdom of God, the unshakable and immovable kingdom of God, was not all about food and drink and regulations regarding washings and ablutions and baptisms. And he served God like this. Not like the priests of the Old Covenant who kept on serving in what had become essentially unacceptable to God since the once and for all self-offering of Jesus Christ. To continue in service like that, like the Old Testament priests, was unacceptable to God, so unacceptable to God that he was going to move to destroy Jerusalem and warned everybody first and destroyed the temple. Jesus warned everybody first of the destruction of the temple by kicking over the money tables and taking over the temple complex with his disciples for a short time, a uncharacteristically militant action by Jesus Christ. But what was it doing? It was a speech act that was announcing what would occur 40 years later in the destruction of the temple, which is where the location of the tent the old tent, the earthly tent, was found. Again, there is a remarkable correspondence of Second Corinthians with Hebrews in the matter of faith, especially in the subjective sense. Some of this is going to be reiterated, but it's important. 
its repetition is not irksome to me, and it's safe for you, Philippians 3.1. In Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This assurance and this conviction are interior. They are part of our interiority. They are our interior, or as psychiatrists like to say, intrapsychic stability. This assurance and this conviction are interior, and they are our intrapsychic stability. They hold our souls together in an intrapsychic unit integrity, we could say. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and a lot of our Sunday messages are also broaching these subjects. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul wrote, for we walk, and that means we simply, we conduct our lives, we operate. We, this is how we, it's our modus operandi and our modus, modus vivendi, our, modus of, our mode of operating, our mode of living, modus vivendi, modus operandi. We walk or conduct our lives by faith and not by sight. There is a mutual mass destruction here. You walk by faith, you're not walking by sight. You walk by sight, you're not walking by faith. You walk by faith, you have this inner intrapsychic stability. You walk by sight and you have the disease of anxiety, which has racked this generation like never before in any kind of generation. For the first time, I saw on the IL, the injured list, of ball players, someone out because of feelings of anxiety. I'm not downing that. I'm not knocking that. That's a reality. We live in an age of anxiety. That's the first time I've seen a player out because of anxiety. But anxiety is real. It's not to be uh, demagnified. It's not to be demeaned. It's people who have it are not to be criticized. It's a real thing. It's, it's something that can be chemical. But I also believe that there is an anxiety tied to walking by sight that can be cured by faith. That's another subject. I'm not a physician. I'm not a psychiatrist. Don't want to be. Just a preacher and a lowly one at that. But this faith, this faith is something that's antagonistic to sight. Sight will make you panic Faith will make you rest. Sight will make you freak out. Faith will make you grace out. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith. We operate by faith. We live by faith. We have our, our life and our livingness by faith. And so in 2 Corinthians 4.18, in connection with that, we focus not on things which are seen, but on things which are not seen. If your entire focus is world occurrence, then you will have angst and anxiety. But if your focus is on the overruler of world occurrence, you'll have peace in your mind and soul. His mind is kept in peace whose mind is stayed on you. I remember that's how I first memorized Isaiah 26.3. It was in one translation that put it that way. He whose mind is stayed on thee is kept in perfect peace. It may not be an accurate translation Septuagint-wise, but it's a pretty good thought. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thought that can be verified by many scriptures. The precise reason why we focus on things which are not which are not seen not on things which are seen the precise reason for this is that what paul means by what is seen with the eyes of natural perception sight are transient things the, in other words paul said we don't focus on the things that are seen precisely because those things are transitory transient evanescent they pass away. That's why people who endure loss can't endure the loss at all. They cannot endure loss because they put all their focus on something transitory or even on someone who is transitory. Grief is real. Grief is tremendous sometimes. But grief cannot define the rest of our lives if we've suffered loss. 
no matter how poignant, painful, and grievous the loss is. For if we look with eyes to see the invisible, we know that if the person we lo- if the per- if it's a person we lost, that we will see them again, and that we already see them as God sees them, because God sees everyone alive in His view, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had died when God appeared to Moses and said, "I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob," speaking of them as men alive. So without, um, I can't, I do not understand how people deal with grief apart from hope, apart from faith. And Paul even said it, we are not of those who grieve without hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, that's the point of that passage. And incidentally, it is not a rapture passage. Might have to take that apart again sometime soon. So the precise reason that Paul says we walk by sight and we walk by faith and not by sight, we focus on things not that are seen but on things that are not seen, is because those things that are seen by sight are transient things, evanescent things, things which use the language of Hebrews 8.13 are things which are about to vanish altogether. To the Hebrews writer and his readers, what was about to vanish altogether was the temple in Old Jerusalem, the temple service of the priests, and in which was housed, in effect, the earthly visible transitory tent or tabernacle and all the services connected with it, which were in turn connected to the first, a.k.a. the Old Covenant. The initial readers of Hebrews' homily were no longer to focus their attention on the earthly visible tent, but rather on the heavenly, invisible, everlasting tent, into the holy of holies of which their Messiah had entered once and for all, and not without blood. Hebrews 9.7, Hebrews 9.12, he went in with his own. For them, in fact, the impermanent city Jerusalem, however majestic to sight and sentiment, and the temple, so-called in the sight of men, but by then an abomination to God, that which is highly esteemed in the eyes of men, a temple resistant to God, is an abomination to God. They were the seen things, the transitory, and about to pass away entirely. There are many things today that men esteem above God and their abominations, and they're about to pass away. By faith, they and we are to look unto Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and always. They were to focus not on the seen thing that is the tent, now the temple in Jerusalem, but on the unseen tent in heaven. The eternal word incarnate is that tent, who tented among us, who lived among us, who suffered with us, who suffered and died for us. And when I say us, I mean all people of all times. And rose again, ascended, and was seated at the right side of the eternal the everlasting majesty. Faith looks to the invisible and eternal realities. Faith looks to the invisible and eternal realities. In Isaiah 6.1, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, who prophesied during the regimes of kings of Judah, the, regime, the regimes of the kings of Judah named Isaiah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He prophesied through four kingly regimes of visible kings. This Isaiah, the son of Amos, and he even opens up the book of Isaiah in 1-1 with saying that, that I prophesied during the reigns of the kings of Judah, namely Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
He announces in Isaiah 6.1, and one of the most profound passages of Scripture is Isaiah chapter 6, quoted in all four of the Gospels, quoted or alluded to throughout the New Testament. Is Hebrew, or rather Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. The prophet Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's the first of the four kings under whom he prophesied, in whose regimes he prophesied. In the year King Uzziah, the visible king, died, I saw the Lord, the invisible king, he said, seated in his lofty place, high and lifted up. And the temple was filled up with the wide hem of his robe. Here are two kings. The visible king, Uzziah, who passed away. That which is getting old and antiquated is nigh on to passing away. That happens to people, too. The outer man is perishing, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, speaking of his own human body. The outer man is perishing, although the inner man is being renewed day by day. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because in our interior, we have the living God. In our interior, God is in us willing and working, revitalizing and reinvigorating. In our interior, we have a faith, which is the conviction of unseen things. We have faith which is the assurance of hoped-for things. Put together, that's a resolute, persevering kind of faith, an enlivening kind of faith. And for me, it's been the faith that saves me, not in the eternal sense, but in a moment-by-moment sense. Your faith has saved you, Jesus says, in this moment. In this time, during this time of world occurrence, because you have not looked at the kings who rule in world occurrence, you've looked past them to the king who overrules, the king of kings, the invisible king. I'll say it again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated in his lofty place. That lofty place is his inhabitation in eternity, of course, in Isaiah 57, 15. We now know Jesus is at his right hand, high and lifted up, and the temple was filled up with the wide hem of his robe. Now, this is also interpreted as a vision of Jesus Christ in the future, in future as John makes clear in John 12, we don't have time to go there, but here are two kings in Isaiah 6.1. The visible king, Uzziah, who passed away. The invisible king, the visible king, Uzziah, rather, who passed away, whose time on this earth was transitory, evanescent, whose reign was passing. But when he died, The invisible king, Adonai, Yahweh, the eternal king. Now we saw two such kings in increment 275. Moses was said to endure and to remain resolute in his obedience to the call of Yahweh when he left Egypt with all of its allure and fame and the pleasures of sin there. It says that Moses did not Fear, the anger of the king. We mentioned that on increment 275. And he meant the visible king, the seen king, the king he saw almost every day when he lived in Egypt. Pharaoh. He didn't fear the wrath, the angry reaction of Pharaoh because he saw the invisible says Hebrews 11.27. And we have to supply a little ellipsis. We have to fill in an ellipsis of thought there. He means the invisible king, the king of kings, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, despite Pharaoh's claim to divinity. 
The more tyrannical governments become, the more divinized they make themselves. They make themselves to be gods. They make themselves divine. And their rule becomes more and more divine. They rule by what they used to call divine right, a king by divine right. Now, that doesn't mean that the king is divine, but he rules by divine right. Kings rule by divine right, but there's only one king who rules by divine essence because he is God, and that's the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Moses didn't focus on the things that were seen, things which are transitory and evanescent, but on things which are eternal and everlasting. It says Moses endured. The word there isn't hupomeno, but another word. But it means that he persevered. He remained resolute in obedience to the Lord's call. He didn't cave in and give up. His hope remained firm. He walked by faith. He not only had the faith that is the conviction of the unseen, but he also had the assurance of things hoped for. Because it says in Hebrews 11.26, just before 27, obviously, that he came to consider the abuse that he suffered for the sake of Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, greater than the fame and the coddling and the worshipful pandering of people in Egypt. He considered the abuse from Egypt and from other nations against him because of his identification with the Messiah. That's like Hebrews 13, 13. Let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach, bearing the kind of abuse he endured. Moses considered that abuse greater wealth than the pleasures of fame in Egypt the flattery, the fawning of people over celebrities, the starstruckness every time Moses showed up with Pharaoh. He considered the abuse. That's just such a remarkable verse to me. He came to consider the abuse that he suffered for the sake of the Messiah, his forward view of Christ, for he had faith in the hoped-for things. And the most hoped-for thing to him was the coming of Messiah. His relationship to Israel rather than Egypt was his identification with Messiah rather than Pharaoh. And so because it says in Hebrews eleven twenty six, he came to consider the abuse that he suffered for the sake of Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he kept his eyes on the reward. That means he hoped for the result of identification with Jesus outside the camp, as it were. There's another picture of Rahab. She survives the destruction of a city by faith. She receives spies from Israel by faith from General Joshua. Because she received those spies, she ends up being delivered from the destruction of Jerusalem or of Jericho which becomes a type of apostate Jerusalem in Revelation and in Hebrews. And she is then a prototype of those who escape the destruction of an apostate city. That's why the writer broke off when he was talking about Rahab and said, and what more can I say? I mean, I, haven't I just said with Rahab the prime example of faith and the deliverance that happens for someone who escapes the destruction of a city, a city that is not permanent. Jericho became a type for Jerusalem then, as did Babylon, as did Egypt, as did Sodom. And so where did she go? Where did Rahab go? Well, she went with the Israelites, but you know where she stayed? Outside the camp. Outside the camp. Let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach 
Hebrews 13, 13. Why? Because here, here we don't have a continuing city. We look for one to come, though. A city to come with foundations, eternal foundations with the names of the 12 apostles written on them, the builder and maker of which is God himself. That's Oranopolis. Let Oranopolis, the new Jerusalem, come into your mind and let it give you the hope. Let it be faith in you, the, the assurance of things hoped for. All of this is an appeal to the initial readers who were on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem. Here, says the PT, we have no continuing city. Was he writing from Rome in Italy? Was he writing about Jerusalem? He could have been writing about any of the great metropolises of our time. We, like the wandering pilgrims of Hebrews 11, look for a city that has eternal foundations, the new Jerusalem, the city of the great invisible king, Matthew 5.35, who is about to become visible to all mankind and to all of creation. So I want to close this increment 278 with this question. What about us? What about us? I'm speaking of us in our time. Say I'm speaking as an American Christian, although I identify with Christians in all nations. The nation that we are, the royal nation, the royal priesthood, is not a nation like America. It's an international, multinational group of people without borders. But say I'm speaking as an American Christian. What about us, for example? We're not on the eve of destruction of our beloved nation with all its once majestic metropolitan centers. Or are we? I'll say that again. We're not on the eve of the destruction of our beloved nation with all its once majestic metropolitan centers? Or are we? I don't know. We too have the magnificent privilege, though, of faith, as I'm speaking now as a member of the New Covenant community. In my national entity, which happens to be America, but I'm part of a nation of multinational peoples called the Holy Nation, the Royal Priesthood, the New Covenant Community. We have the magnificent privilege of focusing on things unseen and everlasting by the supernatural gift of faith, on things permanent and enduring, rather than on things which are transitory and soon to vanish. We too have received an immovable kingdom, and doing so, we can and do remain resolute, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58. For by faith we perceive the otherwise unseen reality of the permanent, radical, universal alteration of the human and cosmic situation which occurred when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. And we are also assured of the permanent universal alteration of the condition of all of mankind to the infinite good, the infinite better, better used 13 times in Hebrews. In context with the change and the alteration of the groaning creation, to the infinite better, to the liberation of the creation from its slavery to corruption. So by faith we perceive the otherwise unseen reality of the permanent, eschatological, radical, universal alteration of the human and cosmic situation which occurred when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself 
when Christ appeared at the Suntalea of the ages to put away sin by the self-sacrifice, his self-sacrifice. And we are also assured by the same supernatural gift of faith, of the permanent universal alteration of the condition of all mankind, the living and the dead, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, of all who are living in God's sight, for the living and the dead are both alive to God and will be made alive in Christ in resurrection. When our great archpriest appears the second time with salvation for all of humanity and all of creation, which waits with him, waits for him with intense anticipation, even to the point of groaning in a universal unison. Whatever our immediate temporal situation Whatever's going on in our world occurrence and whatever will come in our time in world occurrence, we too can see the invisible. We too can look to the invisible eternal king and say, or even sing, for I remember singing this as a song once as a young believer, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In increment 276, we meant, mentioned that Christ appeared in the termini of the ages. And we close this increment 278 with a hymn. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Some translations say the only wise God, but I think it's better simply to say the only God because many kings claim deity. He's the only one who is. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs>